You are Locked On Marlins, your daily podcast on the Miami Marlins, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. This is the Locked On Marlins podcast, your go-to daily podcast for all things Miami Marlins. As always, I'm your host, Arm Leighton. I am a longtime Marlins writer as well as a prospect writer and analyst. And in today's episode, we're going to recap the unfortunate loss. The Marlins drop game one of the two-game series against the Blue Jays 5-1. to one. Unsurprisingly, the offense stalled out a little bit as this offense is still trying to find its identity without Brian Anderson and Miguel Rojas. And they are going to need to figure it out quickly. Yes, they have a stretch of pretty easy ball games ahead against the Pirates and the Rockies. But right now, the way this team looks, they could lose to anybody. When they're clicking, they can beat anybody. We know what the team's capable of, especially with the pitching that the Marlins have. But right now, it looks like things can get away from them quickly if this offense continues to sputter the way it is. Also, Sandy Alcantara, he was able to turn in six innings as he seemingly always does, even when he doesn't have his best stuff. And he has not had his best stuff over the last few starts. Still went six innings, four runs, did give up nine hits and one home run, only punched out four, but no walks. To Sandy's credit, or at least in Sandy's defense, he is going against or went against a red hot lineup that is just absolutely tough to face, even when they're not hot. And as I mentioned in yesterday's episode, this Blue Jays offense, even without George Springer, has been clicking. Marcus Semien has been on fire. He was two for four yesterday. Vlad Guerrero Jr. has been one of the hottest hitters in baseball and looking like an MVP candidate. Well, he looked the part yesterday as well, scorched four hits, three driven in. And Sandy, you look at the box score, you look at how many hard hit balls he gave up, and it looks kind of ugly at first glance, right? Eight hard hit balls allowed by Sandy. That's not normally what he does. He doesn't get squared up very often at all. But then you realize half of those came from Vlad Guerrero Jr. You take away Vlad Guerrero Jr., and he probably only has four hard hit balls allowed, which is more on par with what we're used to from Sandy. The swing and miss stuff hasn't quite been there for him as of late. He's still been competing well. It's not like the Velo's down. I'm not really worried about it. I'd just like to see him have a bit more confidence in his heater because so far over the last few games and especially just overall now in this season, he's going heavier on the changeup than he is on the fastball or sinker. In this ball game, he went a little bit heavier on the sinker, but overall this season, he's thrown the changeup more than any other pitch. So I want to see him establish the hard stuff. I mean, he has the second highest average fastball velo or sinker velo in all of baseball behind only Jacob deGrom. So you have that velocity. The swings and misses haven't always been there for him, and we know that can be the issue at times. He only got two whiffs on 21 swings on that sinker. The changeup, he got four whiffs on 16 swings, and the slider, he got four whiffs on 11 swings. So it was a good sign to see the slider playing up a bit more, but I want to see that sinker be more effective. And honestly, for him, it's about the location because it doesn't matter how hard you throw it. If you leave it up or if you don't put it in the right spot and you don't set it up well with your other pitches, then guys will be able to hit it. So for him right now, it's just a little bit about the 
command, not as much the control. He, he's throwing strikes. He didn't walk anybody, but he needs to hit his spots a bit more with that sinker, and he'll be just fine. Well, again, wasn't like he had a bad start. Four runs given up against a really good Blue Jays offense in what is a hitter-friendly park. While it's not nearly as hitter-friendly as Dunedin, which rivals Coors Field, it's still in the better third of the league in terms of more desirable places to hit in. As for the Marlins offense, we're seeing the importance of Starling Marte, who is really just picking up right where he left off, goes two for four, drives in a run. How about Jorge Alfaro? Another two for four game. He is swinging it well. Two hard hit balls. Also, Garrett Cooper still locked in. Two hard hit balls, went one for three, picked up a walk as well. And that is the good news, right? You're getting a lot of solid production from the guys that you're expecting to get solid production from. Also, Jesus Aguilar added a hit. Hopefully, that'll help him start to break out a little bit from what has turned into quite a bit of a slump for him. Also, Jazz Chisholm, 0 for 4 with 2 Ks. And it's been a struggle for Chisholm, though, to give him the benefit of the doubt. He has also been in and out of the lineup with a couple different injuries, so it's been hard to remain consistent. And I think he's a very rhythmic hitter that can be disrupted by time off and then time back on and then time off again. And he needs those consistent at-bats. Unfortunately, a couple of different little injuries have hampered that ability to consistently play. And I think that disrupted his momentum and it's hurt him a little bit. On the flip side of it, though, and I think also equally as valid of a point is that pitchers are starting to figure out how to pitch to him a little bit. And we're seeing a deliberate plan against Jazz Chisholm because Let's be real. This Marlins lineup is not good right now, especially without Miguel Rojas and Brian Anderson. And Jazz Chisholm's one of the guys you're game planning for. Before, maybe not as much, but now he's one of the guys you're game planning for. If I'm facing the Marlins, I'm thinking about Starling Marte. I'm thinking about Jazz Chisholm and then Cooper and Aguilar. Those are the guys I'm really thinking about and having a specific plan against. And you're seeing it right now with Jazz Chisholm. Basically right now where he's struggling is, and you'd be surprised because when you think back, or at least when I think back to a couple of his best swings of the season, it's on pitches that he's actually been struggling with quite a bit. The elevated fastball has been an issue for him. And that's the wild thing because he's one of the only guys in baseball to turn around 100 miles per hour and hit it for a home run. He did it twice. He's the only guy to do it twice this year, yet he's struggling on the elevated heater. In fact, he's just struggling on the heater in general, hitting just 216 against right-handed fastballs. And when you think that he would be really comfortable against right-handed heaters and it would be the secondary stuff that would give him fits, The weird thing as well is that he's actually hitting lefties much better than he's hitting righties. He's hitting lefties small sample size, but it's enough for me to point it out, I think. He's 8 for 14 against left-handed fastballs, which is also interesting. So a 571 batting average, two of his home runs are on -on left-on-left heaters. When it comes to breaking balls, he really struggles left-on-left, which is expected. Most left-handed hitters struggle against left-handed breaking balls, and he's got a 45% whiff rate on -on left-on-left breakers, hitting just 118 against him. But when he faces righties, despite struggling against the heater and hitting just 211 against fastballs. He is hitting 286 against breaking balls and 333 against off-speed pitches. As teams have gathered this data on Jazz Chisholm, you're seeing the plan kind of being executed here, where overall, the numbers haven't really reflected it, but in recent games, you've seen him see a lot more breaking balls from lefties and a lot more elevated heat from righties to set up that breaking ball in the dirt, which he will still expand the zone and go chase. 
and he is really swinging and missing through a lot of elevated heaters right now, which is surprising again because we've seen him turn around some crazy velo, but overall, he is swinging and missing at 55% of elevated heaters, and a majority of his strikeouts, almost all of them, are coming from breaking balls in the dirt. So right-handed pitchers are establishing that fastball up beating him on the heater up earlier in the count, and then getting him thinking about it and setting up that breaking ball down. I mean, you can't hit 216 against right-handed fastballs as a left-handed hitter. You're not going to be able to have success that way. And I think we're seeing Jazz in a little bit of an adjustment period where I always, always say this, but the big thing with a prospect like Jazz or anybody in Jazz's position is making that second adjustment. Can you make the adjustment to the league adjusting to you? Right now, the plan is clear. Lefties are not throwing him as many fastballs. They know that he can keep that front side on, left on left with the heater. He has no problem with that. Where you can get him is the left on left breaking ball where he struggles to keep that front hip closed. When it's right on left, you just got to gas him up and take advantage of a somewhat steep swing and beat him upstairs with the fastball, which kind of sets up your entire arsenal if you have a good breaking ball to get him thinking about that. Because the second he's thinking about hard stuff up, which I think at times he doesn't trust his hands and trust that he can catch up to it unless he cheats a little bit, which I know he said the DeGrom home run was light work, but if you remember what I said about that when he said, oh, that 100 mile per hour fastball was light, I said, no, it wasn't light. He was cheating for it, which is great. I wanted him to cheat for it. DeGrom was throwing all fastballs. That's the right thing to do. I mean, sometimes you have to cheat for that elevated fastball and make him pay. You got to make them think about it too. What if Jazz is sitting on this, then he's going to hit it a long way. And that's how you get them to stop throwing it as much. If they locate the slider down earlier in the count, then it is what it is. But when Jazz said that was light work, uh, the DeGrom 100 mile an hour fastball just wasn't that hard or whatever. I I didn't really believe that. And I think it's kind of shown that sometimes that elevated heat is still his Achilles heel a little bit. The good news is he's hitting lefties well, especially the fastball. And even if he doesn't hit lefty breaking balls that well, if he's able to stay on the fastballs like he has so far this year, then I have a lot of confidence in him overall. But he's going to need to catch up to those elevated heaters. You cannot swing and miss at 33% of fastballs right on left. You just can't do it if you're jazz. So I really do think it's a little bit of him just having those eyes open up wide at the elevated heater and he wants to just hit it a mile, but he needs to go back to just trusting those hands and just getting on top of those pitches and driving it. We know how easily he can hit the ball out of the yard, especially if it's hard and elevated. Just focus on that. And I think Jazz will settle back in and be just fine. But it is worth noting that he has struck out 16 times in his last 35 at-bats. So all of a sudden, it's been a bit of a tough go for him. But I still have a lot of confidence that Jazz will make that adjustment and settle in. This is only the typical expectation generally of a prospect of his caliber is as teams start to adjust to you, you know, you got to adjust back. Right now, Alec Bohm is really struggling and with similar stuff. He is not able to really catch up to the heater right now and he's getting beat on elevated fastballs. But the scary thing about Bohm is that it's been a long time now. It's been since the start of the season. And of course, teams had a plan for Bohm. He raked last year and right now he's just not really showing any adjustments. I have more confidence in Jazz and his athleticism to be able to adjust pretty quickly. This is a normal stretch for a rookie and it's a normal stretch for a guy who teams are going to be game planning for a bit more 
than maybe some other rookies that are buried a bit more in the lineup and not as much of the focal point of a team. You can make the case when Jazz is going well, he's by far the most valuable player on this Marlins team and on the Marlins lineup from all that he can do on the base paths with the power, with the glove. I mean, Jazz is the guy, again, that if you're facing the Marlins and Jazz is hitting well, that's the guy you're game planning for. So he's going to be fine, but he is going to have to make some of those adjustments and it's something to look out for moving forward. I'm going to talk a little bit about Sixto Sanchez and what his latest shutdown means and a little bit of my thoughts on Sixto. Also, a look at today's game as the Marlins get ready to take on the very tough Alec Manoa. Very excited to get to see him in another start, second big league start. He was fantastic in his first one. Pablo Lopez has continued to be really solid. It's going to be a really good pitcher's duel, and hopefully Pablo Lopez can keep the Marlins in the game, and hopefully the Marlins can get to the rookie he makes one or two mistakes. They got to take advantage of it. Maybe get him out of the ball game and get to that Blue Jays bullpen a bit earlier. We'll see how the Marlins decide to deploy it lineup wise. Obviously, having Alfaro back is a big boost. I hope to not see John Birdie back in left field. I don't love seeing Dickerson out there either, but I'd rather see Dickerson in left field than John Birdie. It's been a really tough go for Birdie, who's down to 165. Isan Diaz did have a hit yesterday, but I don't want to see both Birdie Diaz. I mean, just just look at the bottom of this lineup. How are you going to hit or score runs when in, a, in an ALDH game, an ALDH game, your 7-8-9 is Isan Diaz, John Birdie, and Luis Marte. You're not going to win ball games that way. It's just not going to happen. You're going to need an absolute gem every time out from your starting pitcher. And yesterday, the Marlins had an expected batting average of 137, 137, and they punched out, what was it, 2, 4, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, thanks for counting with me, that's 14 Ks and 7 hits in that ball game for the Marlins yesterday, not very inspiring offensively, they need to go make a move, one player would make a big difference, yes, Eduardo Escobar would make a big difference, even Freddie Galvis, I'm just going to manifest it, I'm going to talk about it until it happens, will make a big difference. The Marlins don't have any infielders in the system right now that can help them. They do have that one dude, Jesus Sanchez, that's swinging it pretty well. Speaking of guys swinging it pretty well, I'm going to talk about some prospects who are red hot in the Marlins system right now as well. It's not all going to be a downer today. We got some positives, but I'm sorry if I'm being a little bit of a Debbie Downer, but it's hard not to be when uh, you got to watch what has been the last few ball games for this Marlins team. I know that they're decimated by injuries, but you got to do something. You got to do something. And if you don't, this could get away from you pretty, pretty quickly. I'm going to talk about all of that in just a moment. But before I get to all of those topics, a reminder that this episode is brought to you by Wealthfront. Day trading can be really tough. In fact, decades of data show that investors who trade individual stocks underperform the market every year. In fact, only 1% of day traders beat the market. The odds are not in your favor if you're doing it alone. Team up with Wealthfront instead. Wealthfront can create a portfolio of globally diversified, low-cost index funds personalized just for you in minutes. No manual trades, no picking stocks, no watching the stock market every day. They automatically handle all the investing based on preferences you control. Wealthfront is trusted with over $20 billion of assets, and you can get your first 5000 managed for free by going to Wealthfront.com backslash LockedOnMLB. That's Wealthfront.com backslash LockedOnMLB to get your first 5000 managed for free. Go to wealthfront.com backslash locked on MLB today. Also brought to you by none other than Built Bar, who has 
say it with me, nine delicious flavors and the occasional limited time flavor. We've got coconut, cherry, raspberry, peanut butter brownie, just to name a few. There's a flavor for everybody and they are all low in calories, low in sugar, low in fat, low in carbs and high in protein. What else could you want from a protein bar? They are covered in chocolate, easy to chew, and great for a keto diet. And best of all, if you go to BuiltBar.com right now and use the promo code LOCKED15, that's LOCKED15, you'll get 15% off your first order. That's promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off your first order at BuiltBar.com. Finally, brought to you by BetOnline.ag. The sports world is in full force right now. We are well into the NBA playoffs. Unfortunately, the Heat were bounced, but we won't talk about that. But there is a lot going on. How about that Damian Lillard game yesterday? He just went off. But if you're not a basketball guy, you got plenty to bet on baseball-wise as well. A full slate basically every single day. NHL, UFC, and MMA action as well. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. This is your chance to get in on the action as teams get deep into their playoff runs or as baseball teams get closer to making their playoff runs. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and you will get a 50% welcome bonus by using the promo code Locked On. That's one word, Locked On, for a 50% welcome bonus at betonline.ag. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. So let's go with one more negative here and then we'll transition to some more positives. The negative being Sixto Sanchez is shut down again with some shoulder discomfort. And There's a lot to unpack here, honestly, because to a degree, injuries are only so preventable, right? I mean, you can't blame a guy for getting hurt a lot of the time, right? Is it Derrick Rose's fault that his knees go bad? No. Also, Derrick Rose has been fantastic. But enough basketball analogies. There's guys like Steven Strasburg. Is it his fault that he continues to get hurt? Probably not. Sixto Sanchez, to a degree, it's not his fault. However, from what we have seen from Sixto Sanchez, would you say that he has done everything in his power to avoid injury? The answer would probably be no. If you remember in 2020, he showed up overweight to camp and the Marlins were kind of like, no, you're not pitching like this. You better get in better shape. We're not going to start you up here right away. You got to get it going. And that's exactly what he had to do. And he said it was a wake-up call for him. Sure, maybe it was. But information's been really limited on Sixto. And there have always been some concerns about Sixto's work ethic. That's always kind of been something that's followed him a little bit, along with the injury concerns. And again, there's injury concerns that follow guys that work their ass off. So I don't want to just say directly injuries are because Sixto is lazy. That's not the point I'm trying to convey. However, when you have a pitcher who is consistently going down with arm injuries and flare-ups and just little things here and there, and he has consistently had questions around his work ethic, you have to wonder if just working a little bit harder on preventative measures would help that. It wouldn't hurt. I can promise you that. It wouldn't hurt. It couldn't be worse. And that's the thing with Sixto. So when you hear things like Sixto Sanchez doesn't use Jaeger bands and doesn't use resistance bands and really doesn't do any of those essential things that pitchers basically do as much as they breathe, right? It's like breathing and Jaeger bands and preventative measures from injuries. Pitchers are kind of psychos like that in the best way possible. And you have to be. I mean, look at 
all of the injuries across baseball. So that's the one thing is there's a lot of injuries. So I don't want to just say like Sixto is the only guy dealing with shoulder issues. He also isn't the biggest dude in the world, though. I don't really believe in smaller pitchers having arm issues much more than the average arm, but that's an entirely different conversation. I think when you hear those things that he is not the guy that does those preventative things, he's not the guy that really puts the extra time in outside of just going out there and chucking, then you, you got to wonder if he could be doing a bit better by himself to prevent these injuries. And that's what's really frustrating is you have a guy with all the talent in the world. I mean, special. When Pedro Martinez is looking at you and telling you, you remind me of me, then you got something special going for you. But you still, no matter how special you are, you have to do the things that you have to do. And hopefully this last little flare up of his shoulder is a wake up call for Sixto like, okay, I'm not invincible. I can't always just come back and throw. I can't just rehab for a little bit, throw a little bit on the back fields, some flat grounds, ramp back up and be good to go. I need to actually take care of myself all the time. Hopefully this is a wake-up call for him because, again, I don't think it's a coincidence that he continues to have these shoulder flare-ups when his workload has been managed really carefully and he really hasn't had that much stress on his arm over the last two years at all and over his career really at all either. That has always been the question, health and work ethic, and those are the two things that continuously are some questions around him. I think that he could be a special, special pitcher. But I don't think we're going to see him until maybe the very end of the season at best. And it could be a very long time until we see him come back because the Marlins want to take their time. They said that before Sixto was shut down again. So I assume they're going to tread very, very lightly. I wouldn't expect him back at all before the All-Star break or even remotely close to after the All-Star break. I think if you're in the Marlins, you're hoping for a late season type of opportunity from him. But if the team isn't competing at that point, they may just give him the year off, which is just absurd. So hopefully Sixto can get healthy. Hopefully he can clean up some of those issues that he has with his arm and just continuously build his way back and get going so that the Marlins can get him back in the rotation. They need him. But Edward Edward Cabrera, excuse me, is no doubt going to beat him back. And hopefully Edward will be good to go and can slot into the rotation for the Marlins at some point this year. I know the Marlins are taking their time with Edward, but he is already getting closer and closer. He's going to make a handful of starts in AAA, and he's going to have to show it there for those handful of starts before he gets the call up. But I do think that we could see Edward Cabrera by after the All-Star break. Within a month of the All-Star break ending, I think that we could see him. So maybe around late July, early August, we could see Edward Cabrera, and that would be a lot of fun. So I'm hoping for that. And that's the silver lining, right? While maybe the Marlins' most prized prospect or one of their most prized prospects may not even pitch this year, at least we got to see Cody Petit emerge as a potential legitimate option for them. Eliezer Hernandez is due back in about two days or three days, I believe. He'll be making that start in Pittsburgh. And then also, you are probably going to get Edward back at some point. And who knows? The Marlins may even call Jake Eater up towards the end of the season, which leads me into the prospects that are just balling out so far over the last few weeks, or even over the last week and a half for the Marlins. And how can I start with anybody other than the hottest hitter in the Marlins organization? And it's so nice now because I can say some of these things and be objective about it because 
Griffin Conine is making it easy for me to be objective and still be able to gas him up as he is on an 11 game hitting streak. He homered again last night. His WRC plus is second highest in the organization behind only Jesus Sanchez at 171. He has seven homers. He's walking a lot. Yes, he is still striking out a little bit at 36%, but he's cutting it down slowly. He's struck out 30% over the last two weeks, and he will slowly cut that down a bit more, but he does offset that with a 15% walk rate. Yes, that is the only thing that is probably holding him back from getting the promotion to double A is the strikeouts. He's got power to all fields. He's sitting over 400 against lefties. The spray chart is amazing. It's just all over the field. From foul line to foul line, he sprays the ball all over the field, whether it's for home runs or whether it's for base hits. He is comfortable hitting the ball to all fields and he's comfortable hitting lefties. So you look at Griffin Conan and you're like, why are you striking out 36% of the time? Don't worry. I've asked him that to his face a bajillion times, and he talks about it. He's working on it, and it's something that is a little bit of how he's pitched. You have to remember, too, like he is one of the most powerful hitters in the minor leagues, and you're going to be pitched pretty carefully. I think Baudet is struggling with that at times where he doesn't think he's going to get a pitch to hit, and then he gets that fastball that's a cookie, and he takes it, and he's almost overthinking his at-bats. I know Griffin was at that point a little bit, and he is much more comfortable now and he's kind of understanding how he's going to be pitched and also he's a cerebral hitter so is JJ Bodet and the interesting thing about some of these prospects right now and Bodet's really struggling and Griffin's doing well but something that even beyond Griffin I've talked to a few different players throughout the minor leagues I've talked to a couple pitchers as well is that the information is so limited and I think it disproportionately affects the hitters because the information is so limited on these pitchers you haven't seen them pitch maybe ever in the minor leagues some of these guys and uh, if you know if they were drafted in 2020 we haven't seen them yet but also if they were guys that have been in the minors for a little bit and the last time we saw them was in 2019 they could be a totally different pitcher from what we've seen and you don't really have much of a scouting report on them early in the season. Now they're starting to compile a scouting report as a lot of the guys across the minors have made several starts and you'll be able to have a more modernized scouting report. But through the first couple weeks of the season, especially for the relievers that you have to face, there's almost no information on them. You're kind of just out there on your own. And I think for guys like J.J. Bleday, who are very cerebral at the plate and have a specific plan, There's no way J.J.'s swing doesn't play in my mind. I think it's more so an approach issue and a little bit of discomfort, and that's why I think J.J. will settle in. With Griffin, he's still doing great things, right? He's sitting for a ton of power, but I think the strikeout rate will continue to drop as he gets more comfortable, because I can tell you firsthand, Griffin is also a very cerebral hitter that likes to just dive into the mental aspect of the game. You wouldn't expect that from a guy with a 36% K rate, but he is hell-bent on cutting that down, and I believe he will. That's the bias in me a little bit there, but there's no bias in the fact that his numbers are fantastic. 284, 396, 602 slash line. It's a 998 OPS. Also, though, another guy that I wanted to highlight because I am really liking what I'm seeing from Thomas Jones teammate in Beloit of Griffin Conine, and Thomas Jones has been really, really impressive. I mentioned as I watched Jones in the video I saw from spring training and even just some video from early in the season when I was watching some of the games, he is explosive. He's a good athlete and he's got power, but the hit tool has really impressed me. 24% K rate. He's walking 9% of the time. His average is up to 286. And also the 140 WRC plus, we're seeing him hit for power. 
I think he can play great defense out there. He is really, really fascinating to me. And I think one of those guys that's kind of slept on in this Marlins organization. You talk to a few different people in the organization, they say Thomas Jones may be one of the more underrated players. Pitchers, hitters, they all say that. And I think it's definitely true, especially when you look at the lower K rate, when you look at the tools he has across the board as an above average runner, an above average fielder, probably above average to plus raw power. I'd give him above average game power. I could see 15, 20 home runs, maybe a little bit more than that. He's stolen a ton of bases throughout his minor league career, has already stolen 11 this year. He's taken advantage of those stupid high A rules, but you know what? He stole 19 without those rules in A ball last year and 20 in A ball in 2018. The K rate is lower than it's ever been. I'm really encouraged by what we've seen from Thomas Jones, and I really am a believer that he can continue this, and he's another guy that one could be of value in a trade piece because while he may not be ranked as high currently by some of the prospect outlets, I think teams would be very interested in him given that he's still 23 and he still has all of those tools, as I mentioned, and he's showing a much more mature approach and a good ability to hit, and he's walking more than he ever has. That's a guy that teams will look at and say, I don't, teams don't look at the top 30 list on MLB Pipeline. If they look at Thomas Jones and they believe in what they're seeing, and obviously the athleticism and body is there, he is 6'4", 200 pounds, a team could really be interested in him. And that's a good piece for the Marlins to potentially be able to move, or the Marlins could move a guy like Gerard Encarnacion if they have more confidence in Thomas Jones being able to do what he's doing. The good news is that the Marlins are just continuing to have some more assets there that are coming through and looking strong. And that's on the offensive side. And I just can't believe that the Marlins got Griffin Conine for Jonathan VR. No matter what happens with Griffin Conine, still just a ridiculously bad trade for the Blue Jays. And I bet you they regret it already. I really do. I bet you they regret it already. And speaking of guys that are performing well, let's talk about the pitching side of things because there has probably been no bigger surprise to me in not only the Marlins organization, one of the biggest surprises in minor league baseball for me this year is Jake Eater. Jake Eater has been ridiculous, just absolutely ridiculous. One of the best pitchers in all of minor league baseball so far this season, 24 and two thirds innings, a .73 ERA. He's striking out 42% of batters. And remember, this is a guy that was drafted in the fourth round in 2020, was not a big standout arm in college at Vanderbilt. He was a solid arm, a very solid arm that was kind of between the bullpen and the rotation. But one of those guys that you could just see the stuff was there as a lefty, that there was a lot of projection, but hadn't quite put it together. I had a chance to talk to a couple of hitters that faced him in college. And I said, you know, what do you think of this? Because when they faced him, it was 2020, just before the season had got cut short. And I talked to those guys and they said, honestly, I'm not that surprised. That's what they told me because they said, yes, was the command a little bit inconsistent when we saw him? Yeah. And we were able to kind of get into hitters counts and key on the fastball. That was the only way that they were able to hit him at times. And that was why he ran into trouble in college at times. But they said, you know what? We knew that if he could hone in on his stuff, that he was going to be a problem. So is it surprising that he's dominating double A straight out of the draft in the fourth round? Absolutely. But is it surprising that he has this caliber of stuff and that he's doing well? No, it's not surprising at all to those guys that faced him. And that just reaffirms everything that we've seen from Jake Eater, in my opinion. The stuff is there. He's starting to hone it. He could be better with the command. He's still walking four batters per nine. So, I mean, that could be better, but he is still just 
ridiculous. He's almost unhittable. He's good against lefties. He's good against righties. He's showing much more comfort throwing all of his pitches. And I mean, when you're striking out 42% of batters and holding opponents to a 135 batting average, the only guy that can really hold you back from being successful is, is you. And for Eater, it seems like that's the case, which I love because Eater's a hard worker and he's got a lot going for him. Only 12 hits allowed in 24 and two-thirds innings. He's allowed 12 walks and 12 hits. So that just kind of shows you he is the only person that's holding him back from essentially just being the best pitcher in the minor leagues right now statistically. Obviously, there's guys that are more talented. Grayson Rodriguez is my favorite pitching prospect in baseball, and even Max Meyer has been next level impressive so far this year. But Max Meyer hasn't had the swing and miss stuff. It's been great swing and miss stuff. Don't get me wrong. But if we're comparing him to what Jake Eater's been able to do swing and miss wise, it hasn't even been really comparable. I mean, Jake Eater with 42 strikeouts in 24 and two thirds innings is a southpaw, whereas Meyer 22 and 23 innings, which is which is still really solid. And Meyer has still limited the contact, only 16 hits in 23 innings. He has kept the ball in the yard, only one home run allowed. And also, his walks, I'd like to see it be a little bit better too. Eight walks in 23 innings isn't really Max Meyer's MO, but a 1.96 ERA in five games, he could really be climbing up and make his debut by the end of this year too if the Marlins wanted to, especially out of the bullpen. Meyer could come out of the bullpen right now in the major leagues, and so could Jake Eater with the fastball-breaking ball combo. The breaking ball is a hammer from Eater. The other guys that I've been really happy with are the two former Katuit guys that I had the chance to watch a ton of in the summer, so I was super amped when the Marlins drafted both these dudes, but Kyle Nicholas and Zach McCambly, former guests on this podcast, and they talked a lot about what they were working on after the draft and going into this season, and both of them have looked spectacular in high A Beloit. Kyle Nicholas was the Marlins' uh, third selection in the draft, second round competitive B selection. McCambly was the team's fourth selection and third round pick, and both have looked like great picks so far. Both have ridiculous stuff, and you could tell the plan for the Marlins was hard throwers with a good breaking ball, but that's usually the plan for a lot of teams. But Kyle Nicholas has an electric fastball and just a hard sweeping slider that can run up to 90 miles an hour. It's a ridiculous two-pitch combo. And another guy, Kyle Nicholas, the good thing about him is the fallback is he could be a legitimate top-end closer. But the Marlins are looking at a potential starter here, and I know they want to develop him into a starter, and it's very possible that they can. He's 6'4", 223, so he's still trying to time up all of his levers and get his body you know, more compact and more repeatable with the mechanics, but I think he's getting better and better with that. I watched him get better with his mechanics as the summer went on in Katuit, and his command continued to improve, and you saw Katuit continue to just unleash him in more high leverage situations, stretch him out into more innings, and he was more and more comfortable. And he said something kind of clicked for him in the second half of the summer, and it just really started to happen well for him. Then he went into the shortened 2020 season and just demolished hitters, just carved dudes up. He had 18 strikeouts in one start against Sacred Heart. So he was just really putting it together, throwing more strikes. So far this year, the command could be better, but 28 Ks in 19 and thirds innings is spectacular. He also has walked 10, but I still am really encouraged overall from what we've seen. And I am really happy with the results from Kyle Nicholas so far. Zach McCambly has been spectacular as well. Needs to avoid the long ball a little bit. Sometimes the fastball can flatten out when he doesn't hit the spot. Doesn't have as much velo to hide behind as Kyle Nicholas, but also also may have the best breaking ball in the Marlins system. And that's saying a lot, but it is definitely the best curveball in the Marlins system. And he has racked up 34 Ks in 26 innings. The command has been superb 
for my man, Zach McCambly. Two walks in 26 innings, 34 strikeouts. That's a really, really good 16 to 1, or what is that? My math sucks, sorry. 17 to 1 strikeout to walk ratio. So Zach McCambly, another really pleasant story for the fish. So it seems like they have knocked this draft out of the yard so far. It's early. Obviously, it's early, but so far, to get what you're getting out of Eater, McCambly, Meyer, and Nicholas, I mean, it has been a slam dunk. I've been just so impressed, and we'll see how Dax Fulton does, but that's a nice little extra guy to have and potentially solidify this draft class, but even if he didn't do anything, even if he was really struggling, I would still say this draft class looks really, really good, and I am very high on Dax Fulton, so this could be a very, very special shortened draft class that we'll look back on in a few years and say, wow, there was only five rounds and they got all these guys from that team or from that draft, excuse me. That would be unbelievable. That also leads me to the point of all of these pitching prospects are emerging for the Marlins. They already have several that are solid prospects as well, and they have the 16th and 31st picks in this year's draft, which is essentially two first round picks. They're going to get two really solid prospects that will immediately slot into their top 15-ish, depending on how good their system is at that time, which is still going to be really good, but they're going to get two basically first round picks there and you're going to have such a good system even if you trade guys away. You have all of these pitchers performing well, a few emergent hitters, and now you have two first round picks. Make a trade. Please make a move. You need to. And I hope that they do that real quickly on the Marlins matchup against Manoa. Going to be tough for Pablo Lopez. Can he get the right on right outs? That's going to be the challenge for him. He likes to go right on right change still pretty frequently. That's his bread and butter. Can he do that against guys like Vlad Guerrero Jr. and some of these really good hitters, Marcus Semien, that have been red hot? Going to be a challenge. Can the Marlins hit Alec Manoa's slider. That's going to be a challenge as well. I think if you can go more lefty heavy in this lineup, you got to do it. I know we'll see Dickerson in the lineup today. Probably no John Birdie. I'd rather see Luis Marte, and we might even see Isan Diaz go play third because I know the Marlins are probably going to want to go right-handed heavy, or left-handed heavy, excuse me, in this lineup against a really, really good Alec Manoa slider. But the bad news is Alec Manoa is comfortable going to that slider on lefties and back-legging them as well. Just enjoy the pleasant pitching if the Marlins give you nothing to enjoy, but let's hope that the Marlins are able to run into a couple baseballs and Cooper can stay hot and maybe the Marlins can split this series and then head into a nice little stretch of easier ball games where even with a decimated lineup, maybe the Marlins can start to compete a bit better and survive and just survive in advance each 24 hours until you're a day closer to getting all of your reinforcements back. Looking forward to getting Eliezer Hernandez back very soon as well. As always, thank you for listening and I look forward to talking Marlins baseball with you tomorrow.